All right. So, somebody catch me up. What have we been going through the last, I don't know, a couple of months now? It's been a while. What'd you say, Mandy? Covenants. Covenants. All right, good. Abraham. Yeah, we went over the Abrahamic covenant. We just jumped right over the Mosaic covenant, and we started the Davidic covenant last week. But even before the Abrahamic covenant, what were some of the foundational things that we went over before that? Yes, Sandra stayed awake. Good job. <laughs> Those were some dry lessons, but very important. Yeah, the, the clarity and the authority of the Bible, talking about how we have to have this hermeneutical foundation, how we approach the text is going to make a big difference as to where we end up in our understanding of what the text is saying. And so we spent several weeks going through, uh, yeah, clarity, authority, and uh, inspiration, how the Bible is infallible, how we need to understand it contextually and literally, grammatically, historically. So we were past all that, past Abrahamic covenant, now we're in the Davidic covenant. And somebody tell me where we can find the Davidic covenant summarized most succinctly in Scripture. a boy, Rex. Second Samuel 7. It's a good one to remember. When you think 2 Samuel 7, you should think the Davidic covenant. And we talked about the three different aspects of the Davidic covenant. What were the three aspects we found in 2 Samuel 7? All right, house, kingdom, and what was the last one? All right, house, kingdom, and throne. And I just about skipped the R like I did last time. And how long were these three aspects of the Davidic covenant promised? Forever. They are an everlasting covenant, aren't they? Let's turn back there and let's read that real briefly before we jump in. 2 Samuel 7. And yes, a forever covenant. Eight times in this chapter we see the word forever. Uh, it's an important concept that we have here, that this is a, a perpetual covenant that God made with David. Remember, David wanted to build God a, a permanent house. He said, you're going around in a, a tabernacle in a tent, and I'm living in the cedar house. That's not okay. That's not right. And so he wanted to build God a house forever. And God said, no, I'm going to build you a house, and it's going to be eternal. It's going to be everlasting. And so let's go ahead and read that. Will somebody read for us verses 8 through 17 of 2 Samuel 7? I got it. What is All it? right. 8 through 17. Yes. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. No, that's not right. That's right? Okay. <laughs> I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make 
you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I have removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. All right, thank you. All right, I wanted to go back and clarify something that I had said last week. We were looking at verses 13 and 14, where it says that he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And at this point, I started talking about the, the near and the far fulfillments. You remember that? How there's a, a immediate fulfillment and then oftentimes when we're looking at prophecy, there's a, a later fulfillment and... The next verse we see, obviously, is talking about Solomon, right? Because it mentions his sin. It says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And there are some people that see verse 14 as speaking about Christ, even though it's speaking about iniquity. And, they'll, and it's speaking about his iniquity. And they say that it is referring to the iniquity that he takes upon himself from us, I don't see that. I don't see any reason in the text to, to go there. Um, just wanted to make that clarification. I think that's clearly, it clearly has Solomon in view, that Solomon is the, uh, the immediate fulfillment of this passage. And it's just later on that we realize this is about Christ. We're going to look at that uh, primarily today, about how this is fulfilled in the, the person of Jesus. But before we get there, um, you guys will also recall that several times we've mentioned how the other uh, covenants that we find in covenant theology, we haven't really gotten into those yet, and we will at some point, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, um, the covenant of grace, how those covenants um, aren't necessarily found in Scripture, that people will uh, deduce the fact that those covenants exist, that people arrive at an understanding of them by, by reasoning from other texts, and I would say reading into other texts, making assumptions, and really, in my view, going beyond what the text says to try to come to, in their mind, what is a, a logical conclusion. But again, there's no explicit scripture that says this is a covenant that God made in redemption, or in the covenant of works, or the covenant of grace. And I conceded last time that as we were going through 2 Samuel 7, we also don't see any covenant language in this chapter either. It doesn't say that God made a covenant or he established an oath with David, but we did look at other places. So these other uh, places in scripture where we can find these, these words like covenant and oath um, mentioned. So 2 Samuel 23, 5, 2 Chronicles 7, Jeremiah 33, and Psalm 89. You can find in those places that God refers to this as a covenant that he made with David. And last week, we ended off in Psalm 89. Let's go back to Psalm 89 just briefly. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around today. 
So back in Psalm 89, and again, these are the, the verses in particular where we can read about the covenant. Verse 3 and 4, 28 and 29, 34 through 37. I'll go ahead and read that chunk right there, 34 through 37. The psalmist says, um, on behalf of God, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness of the sky is faithful. So it's, once again, a forever covenant. We do see that language mentioned there, the the word of covenant. Let me just pick out a a few verses here. The next verse, verse 38, um, we kind of see a a change here in the, the psalmist's perspective. Here he's starting to ask, God, God, where are you? Where is this king? Where is your promise? Where is your, your faithfulness? So 38, he says, but you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. And jumping down to verse 46, he says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? And then down in verse 49, where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness. And so, again, the, the psalmist, he's seeing, okay, well, there's, there's not a king on the throne right now. What's going on? Where is this, this forever promise that you made with David? And the interesting thing about Psalm 89 is that it was written all the way back here, like as a contemporary with David which you might think, well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You would think maybe it was written after after Zedekiah. He was the last king of Judah. But uh, if you remember, there was a period where Absalom, David's son, was in the throne, and that's most likely when this was going on, back when Absalom was waging war with David for the throne. All right, so today we're going to go through and we're going to trace what happened to the throne, what happened to the kingdom um, that God had established to David. And so we need to start off by looking at Solomon, the, the one who was in view back in 2 Samuel 7, 14, talking about his sin. That's going to be important. We need to remember that. So let's go back to 1 Kings. I told you we'll be jumping around a little bit. Our next stop is going to be 1 Kings chapter 9. And here in 1 Kings chapter 9, we're going to see this Davidic covenant that God had made with David. Now it's renewed or, or reiterated with Solomon. So 1 Kings chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. It says, Now it came about when Solomon had finished, finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, and he had appeared to him at Gibeon as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated the house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David. 
saying, You shall not lack, lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted their gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all of this adversity on them. So, that is the reiteration of the Davidic covenant to Solomon. What jumps out to you in those passages? What is, um, what is unique about what we read in those verses? He just made a condition. Yes, there is a condition there, right? And what is the, the condition that we see there? Follow his statutes and his commandments. Yes. So all the way back up in verse 4, we see the word if, right? Whenever we're going through Scripture, that should jump out at us. It's a condition. And then in verse 5, then. So if you walk before me as your father David in integrity and uprightness, doing according to all my, my commands, my statutes, my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David, right? And again, we saw this back in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 talking about how your son is going to go on and sin and what the the protocol would be for that and here we see it even more explicitly pointed out to Solomon as he's beginning to step into this role remember Solomon um, he asked for wisdom and he seemed to do well at times and he seemed to struggle at other times um, before we go on and see what happens with Solomon later on in this passage do you guys remember we took a little bit of a, a pit stop last week before we really got to 2 Samuel 7? We looked at Deuteronomy 17, and in Deuteronomy 17, we read about conditions for a king. This was looking forward to Israel's king and saying that this king he needs to take and he needs to write down the law and keep it with him so that he can follow the ordinances of God. And there were three... No wives, yeah. There were three aspects that... Uh, God said, don't do this, avoid these things. One of them was wives, good. Jeremy jumped the gun. What else do we see there? Horses. Yeah, no horses, and what else? Gold and silver. Gold and silver. All right, and, and why not? What's wrong with horses, gold and silver, and, and women? What's wrong with women, men? It's the multiple part. The multiple part. Good job, Rex. All right. I was wondering who's going to open up their mouth and get in trouble. Oh, that was James. Oh, giving Rex credit. Good job, James. <laughs> yeah, so it's the multiple aspect, right? Not to take for yourself many women, not to take many wives. And what about the horses? Why no horses? Power. Yeah, looking for a power, establishing military might and not putting your trust in God, right? And then same kind of aspect with silver and gold. Don't collect these things to yourself. All right, so now we saw in 1 Kings 9 that this covenant has been reiterated to Solomon. Let's just look in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 26. 
starting in verse 26 of 1 Kings 10, it says, Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also Solomon imported the horses. Import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's merchants procured them from Q for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. So he's wheeling and dealing and getting other kings involved in all this stuff that he's doing too. Carrying on to the next chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. So how is Solomon doing so far? He's, he's 0 for 3, right? He's collecting all these horses, collecting all these silver. Silver was as popular as stones in Jerusalem. And he has a thousand women that he calls his own, right? Doesn't even know their names, I'm sure. I, I don't know how he could keep track of a thousand women. I guess being the wisest man might, might aid him a little bit. Name tags. Name tags. <laughs> That's one option. That, that could get a little awkward. Yes. Uh, and so in addition to going 0 for 3 on those commands that were given back in Deuteronomy 17 that a king of Israel must do, um, we see in verse 2 that he's dealing with these nations that the Lord said, you need to stay away from them. So he's doing these three things he ought not to do, and he's doing them with nations that he ought not to be associating with, and they shouldn't be associating with him. Uh, Solomon's not doing too well, right? He's not off to, to the best start so far. Well, let's keep reading, starting in verse 4. Yes. In Solomon's defense, though, he asked for wisdom, and God promised that he'd make him wealthy. Yeah. It's true. He said back in chapter 4 that he would give him wealth, power, and wisdom. Yep. So, Whether or not I mean, he uses that wisdom, though. <laughs> yes. Well, Yep. Remember Ephesians 1.11, that all things happen according to God's perfect will, yeah. right? That doesn't take away the responsibility from Solomon. Solomon was, again, Deuteronomy 17, he was supposed to write down the law. And that very same passage says he was supposed to write down the law. He was supposed to avoid these three things. So just because he had those things doesn't mean that he needed to indulge in them the way that he did. And they certainly shouldn't have drawn him away from the Lord. That wasn't... Um, God's prescription to, to take and to handle these things in that way. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, verse 4, let's keep going. It says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other gods, or after other gods, rather, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Sid Sidonians, <laughs> and after Milcom, the detestable god of the Ammonites. 
Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, and the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. It's pretty harsh, right? It's righteous, but it's harsh. It's what he deserves. And later on in this same chapter, we see that uh, Solomon kicks a bucket. He's, he's gone. He doesn't last beyond this. And just as uh, we read back in ch- verse 11, it says that God will tear the kingdom away from him and give it to his servant. So shortly after David, we see that Solomon dies, right? We'll put Solomon right here. And this is the beginning of the, the split of the kingdom. So up here we have Jeroboam. Jeroboam is this servant that he was referring to. Jeroboam uh, isn't related to David, isn't related to Solomon. He's not the, the son of David, as we've read, right? And he is now the king of Israel. This board is moving on me. And then down here is Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and he is the king of Judah. And so this split takes place there just shortly after uh, 1000 BC. I didn't really point this out. Um, these are estimates, these timelines. That's how I remember them easily. Uh, Abraham's 2,000 years ago, David was 1,000, or not years ago, 2,000 B.C., David's 1,000 B.C., and then Moses and Isaiah are twice as far, or Moses is uh, twice as long ago as Isaiah, I don't know. So, yeah, 700 and 1,400 and 1,000, 2,000. It works in my head, it just doesn't come out of my mouth well. All right, so we see that the, the kingdom is split that um, Solomon's son um, ruled in, uh, in Judah, and Jeroboam rules in Israel. Now, they don't really do the best of job ruling, especially in Israel. They had 20 kings in Israel, and every single one of them was evil and wicked and not right in the sight of God. In Judah, there were 20 kings, and 12 of them were evil and wicked, and there were eight who were considered not evil and wicked, uh, some better than others. But um, things definitely went downhill after Solomon and his turning away from uh, what David had commanded him to do, and, or what David had done and the Lord had commanded him to do. And then shortly after this, maybe not shortly, but what happens here in 722? What big event takes place. 
Assyrians? The Assyrian captivity, yes. So, yeah, 722, the Assyrians come in and they take Israel captive. So we have the Assyrian captivity in 722. So they no longer have anybody on the throne. Again, they had a split kingdom up until this point, kings in the north and Israel, kings in the south and Judah. And now the, the kings in the north, the, the bulk of the tribes, 10 little tribes, they are gone in Assyria. And then what about down here in five, well, I guess we have a few. So 605, 597, I think. And 586, yes. What's that? You were going backwards. What happened in, in those years? Yes, that was the, the Babylonian captivity, right? And that came in three different rounds. Um, people coming in and taking captives and taking parts of the temple. And then finally in 586, it was completed. So... 586, there is no longer any king on the throne of Judah at all. They are completely gone. And so we're left with this Davidic covenant that they're going to have a king. And now they're half in Assyria and half in Babylon. And we're kind of left with a little bit of a question. What's going on here? What happened to that forever promise that God made to David? I have a, a quote here from Reynolds Showers. He says, God pledged that David's kingdom would never pass away permanently, even though it might not function at all times. It is a fact of history that David's kingdom has not functioned at all times since God made this solemn promise. But this divine pledge was a guarantee that David's kingdom would always have the potential of being restored to full function. So we need to... Remember that just because there isn't a king on the throne at that point in time, that the Davidic covenant isn't in any way invalidated. In fact, I want to go through and look at what the understanding of the, the old covenant Jews was, how they understood this situation that they were in, where they were outside of their land, they were captives under different nations. What was their understanding? So let's look at some post-exilic scripture. And again, we're going to we're going to go through some scripture here, and I'm going to need your help reading because i got a lot to read. But we will see as we go throughout here that the, the Old Covenant Jews, they still anticipated a son of David, a future son of David to come. So let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah for a little while. Jeremiah is an awesome book. We should go through Jeremiah one of these days. All right, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. And Jeremiah, yes. If you don't mind me just throwing a thought out there that I had. Uh, for Christmas, I got a book from my stepmother uh, that's an illustrated history of the world. I, don't, I can't remember who published it, but it's really cool. It goes through from as far back as we can go up to today <clears throat> with all kinds of pictures of artifacts and everything else. Mm -hmm. And it's just really neat that, you know, we're talking about Assyria and Babylon and stuff. And those years and everything, that's real history huh. that's in the Bible. And the Bible's like the main reason why we know how all this stuff happened and, and what happened. And they have a whole section where they talk about the Assyrians and everything. And it's a secular book. But talk about the Assyrians taking Israel captive and stuff. And that 
really helps me because I have I struggle with Old Testament narrative, uh, but it helps me to remember that unlike you know other things out there in the world, that this isn't just made up stuff. This is real history. With yeah. Real years, real people. Yeah, and real places and real kingdoms coming in and conquering and yeah, that's good. This last week in our Sunday school class, we were looking at a quote from Josephus talking about how Herod killed John the Baptist. And that same kind of thought entered my mind. Like, this is so cool that like, he actually takes interest in what's going on with John the Baptist. Like he obviously had real influence and uh, he was a real dude who was uh, making waves in the, the nation of Israel and Herod wasn't liking it and Josephus thought this is worthy enough to, to jot down. So yeah, good thought. All right, any other thoughts or questions before we jump into Jeremiah? All right, Jeremiah 23, and can I get somebody to read verses 5 through 8, please? 5 through 8? Yes, please. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up to David, raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. All right. So I didn't mention out loud, but I wrote up here on the board that Jeremiah was written from 586 to 570. So this is a, a post-exilic book. It was written after both the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. And this is what... God is saying to the people through Jeremiah that the days are coming when he will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is still happening. Even though they're, they're gone, even though uh, their, their hopes are down, we see a, a lot of just downcast, read through lamentations written at the same time. And you just see how discouraged they are. And we'll see that as we continue on. And yet God says, no, I'm still going to raise up a branch, a righteous branch. And he will deliver you. And down in verses 7 and 8, we see a little bit more of that near and far fulfillment that we were talking about last week. That they're going to be led up out of captivity. That they're going to return to their land. And that certainly happened after coming back from Babylon. However, that didn't overshadow uh, being brought up out of the land of Egypt. Right? So, in, in one sense, they have already been led out of captivity. They were brought back to their land. We can look at... Ezra and Nehemiah and see how they came back. However, there's still something that is future in view here, where it's going to absolutely overshadow everything that happened back in Egypt. And it's out of obligation to David. Yes. Yeah, because of that promise that he made to David. God remembers faithful. He's not going to lie. I just think it's interesting. He says for David. Yep. And we see that several times uh, I think several passages that I haven't included today. Um, well, I think maybe when we were back in First Kings 9, I mentioned that, that for David's sake, um, he's not going to um, give all of the, the kingdom into the hands of his servant. That's why 
Rehoboam remained on the throne for the sake of David. So God is definitely faithful to that covenant that he made with David and uh, makes that, that clear several times. All right, turn on over to Jeremiah 29. 29 is a good chapter, but it's a, a harsh, kind of chilling chapter, like, oh man, that, that kind of sucks for, for Israel. Um, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 6. Who's going to grab that for us? 4 through 6? Yes, please. 29, 4 through 6. Thus, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build the houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Ouch, right? God's saying build houses in Babylon. You're going to be there for a while, so settle in and get comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not fun, right? You're going to plant gardens and you're going to eat them and you're going to have kids there, and they're going to eat from your gardens, and they're going to live in your houses. It's going to be a while. So he's telling them to, to settle in. But let's jump on down to verse 15. Jeremiah 29, 15 says, Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing, and a reproach among the nations where I have driven them out. Because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. You therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So God has future plans for this nation. And back in 16, it says, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David. So there was a king sitting on the throne, and he says, yeah, no more, right? This, they're they're going to be done. And that's in reference to Zedekiah, who was the last king. So we see that this was planned ahead of time. It's not something that um, caught God off guard. Again, he is the one who is willing and dealing and pulling the strings and making these things happen. He used Babylon to bring justice upon Israel. Jump over one more chapter. Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30, and I'll read the first 11 verses. Talking about how God will rescue Israel. This is looking forward. Um, again, a little bit of near and far going on here. So Jeremiah 30, verse 1. says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. 
For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do you see every man with his hand on his loins and a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds. And strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you, for I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So again, we know that after this, they did indeed come up out of the land. However, not all these things had taken place where it says that um, Jacob will live in, in quiet and ease in verse 10 and that no one will make him afraid. That's not what's going on today, right? That's not the, the current reality for Israel. In verse 11, he says, I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. These are looking into the future when Israel will be returned again to the land. Even though there was a, a near fulfillment after this, there's still a, a far fulfillment yet to come. And we saw in uh, verse 9, it says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So remember, post-exilic, right? They've already been exiled. They, at this point, don't have a king on the throne. Zedekiah was already deposed and uh, killed. He had his eyes gouged out. Um, and they're looking forward to David being, the, the son of David being established as king. They still have a hope for the future that they're looking forward to. Now, that same verse, verse 9, some have suggested that that is in fact David, that he will be resurrected and he will reign in the future. I don't hold that position. I don't think that's going to happen. Again, I think that's pointing forward to Christ, that he's the one who's going to fulfill that promise. All right, a couple more in Jeremiah. Uh, we'll, for the most part, skip over Jeremiah 31, though we will be back there for the New Covenant. That is one of the key passages for the, the New Covenant. But look real quick at verse 6 of Jeremiah 31. Um, we'll touch on this a little bit more next week. But it says, For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. We see that they have a, a physical place in mind, that they want to go up to the mountain, that they have this destination where they can go on earth in, in real time. So uh, perhaps we'll come back to that a little bit next week. But jump over that and let's go to 33. Jeremiah 33, and this is the last text we'll look at in Jeremiah. All right, Jeremiah 33. Now, starting in verse 14. 
It says, Behold, days are coming, future, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. And the second time we've seen that phrase, right? A righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn again offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The, Lord of, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers." As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So, again, still looking forward to the future. God speaking just as confidently as ever, even though at that particular time there wasn't a, a king reigning on the throne. He says, it's going to happen. I'm going to raise up this branch, this righteous branch of David. You can take it to the bank. As sure as you can look up and see the the sun and the moon, uh, I'm going to be faithful to my servant David. Any thoughts or questions on anything in Jeremiah? All right. Again, Jeremiah is good and rich, and that was just a, a brief survey of all the uh, stuff in Jeremiah dealing with the coming Messiah. But let's Take a look at one more Old Testament passage real quick. Let's go to Hosea. What is the book of Hosea about? The unfaithfulness of Israel. Yes, Israel's unfaithfulness. So in chapter 1, Hosea is told, go and marry Gomer, this, this whore, this prostitute, this harlot. Take her for your wife. And in chapter 2, Israel is compared to a harlot. She is... God's bride who's gone off and she's now prostituting herself to all these other gods. Um, but I want to read chapter 3. Well, before I do that, the last verse of chapter 2 is just awesome. Um, we won't really get context for it, but uh, Hosea 2.23 says, I will sow for her myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. That is a good verse that we should highlight in our Bibles. All right, Hosea chapter 3. It's only five verses. Will somebody read Hosea chapter 3 for us? And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod 
or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. All right. So, again, Israel is going to return to God, that God is going to send David their king to them. And just in case you're kind of skeptical and you think, okay, well, all this stuff in uh, Jeremiah, that was just retconned. That's something that um, was written in after the fact, after Israel lost their king. Well, Hosea was written before either one of these uh, captivities, before the Assyrian or Babylonian captivity back in 750. This was written like, hey, heads up. Uh, there's a, a king coming. You're going to turn your back on me. You're going to pour yourself after other gods and I'm still going to send a king. I'm going to raise up the king for you. All right. Um, we will hit one last Old Testament passage. We have to go to Psalm chapter 2. And I'll read for us right here. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. And I'm sure these will be familiar verses for you. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So again, Israel is looking forward to their king. They're still looking for this son of David. That's key terminology that we saw all the way back in uh, 2 Samuel 7. That a son of David, he will be given this house forever, this kingdom forever, this throne forever, to rule forever. And now, here in Psalm 2, says, He has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Is that familiar to you? You guys recognize that, that passage, that verse? Uh, we see that said almost... Uh, verbatim of Jesus in Matthew 3 at his baptism when the father comes down he says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased this was a, a, a big deal a sign to Israel that this is my son this is the one who has come this is the Messiah the anointed one we see all kinds of terminology and language like this throughout the New Testament that Jesus is in fact the son of David um, the very first verse of Matthew points this out. This is his, um, his purpose, is to write to the Jewish people to lift up Jesus as king and to let them know Jesus is your king. He is here. The Messiah is here. So Matthew 1.1 says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So these are, it doesn't necessarily pop off the page to us but you could bet that it would have for a jew that this would be like in all caps and red letters with exclamation points after it the messiah the son of david the son of abraham is here the one that i've made these promises to the promise to to abraham the promise to david that you will have a king on the throne that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the the sky and the sand of the seashore and that through your descendants the whole world will be blessed this is all pointing to Jesus and comes to uh, fruition in Jesus. Um, let's jump forward in Matthew. Matthew 21, verse 9. 
people start to, to recognize this. They start to pick up on these clues and figure out who Jesus is. So this is um, as Jesus is coming in to the city on Palm Sunday. It says the crowds were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So, again, they're, they're starting to pick up on it. They're starting to realize this is the Christ. This is the one who is, in fact, the son of David. We read the, the story in chapter 22, just the next chapter over, about Jesus asking them, um, who is the, the son of David? How is it that David can say to his son that he is both Lord and son? And they're not really able to, to give an answer to it. Um, but it says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. But um, Jesus is kind of bringing this to the forefront and pointing out that the son of David is in fact his Lord, his God, that he is the son of David. <clears throat> All right, let's turn to Mark. We still got a few minutes. We're good. Mark chapter 10. When you get there, will somebody read verses 47 and 48 of Mark 10? Yeah, thanks. Yes, please. Good. So, once again, people are recognizing he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. And that's part of why uh, people were kind of let down. They didn't really understand what to expect with this Messiah because they weren't looking for this humble servant. Uh, that's what Mark is talking about. The, the servant king is here. They were looking for a, a reigning king. They were looking for a king who would come in and have the government on his shoulders, like Isaiah foretold. They were looking for a king who would come in and have this political power, this political reign. We'll get there next week. But that's not where Jesus was in, in his first uh, incarnation, when his first coming. Um, he came to seek and to save the lost. Not to be served, but to serve. Uh, jumping over to chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Who's got that? Mark 11, 7 through 10. Thank you. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And then he spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front of those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. So that verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They're still looking forward to this kingdom. They're still drawing back on that promise that God had made to David a thousand years ago. And again, even though they didn't have a king at that point, even though this is after Babylon, Assyria, they're still banking on that promise of God because they didn't understand that promise to mean that there's going to be a king for every moment throughout uh, all these years of exile, they understood 
that um, meant that they would always have somebody who could stand up and, and take on that role as the king. And they understood that Jesus was the son of David. All right, now let's turn to Acts. And I think we'll end here today. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and I'll go ahead and start in 22. It says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Man, we need to be bold like that, don't we, in our preaching and our declaration of God? Verse 24 says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now listen here, it says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, the flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's what David wrote. But then it goes on and says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's drawn back to Psalm 110.1. 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So David himself was looking forward to Christ being the fulfillment of this promise. And uh, Peter here says, it's not David. David's in the ground. David died long ago. We can go and find his bones today. We can find his grave today. He is dead. This is pointing to Jesus who was raised up. He was resurrected. And then one last passage in Acts. Jump over to 13. This will be similar to what we just saw in chapter 2. Acts 13. And will somebody grab 32 through 39? Acts 13, 32 through 39. Who's got that one? God raised did not undergo decay, 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Amen. That is something that David could not do. David couldn't forgive sins. He couldn't proclaim this forgiveness of sins and provide life to them. That's not something David could do. That's not something the law of Moses was sufficient to do. That's something that Christ the Messiah himself had to do. And Jesus himself says, Revelation twenty two sixteen. this is a great verse. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the root of David and the descendant of David. He is the one who came through to fulfill these promises. He is the son of David, and he is before David. He is David's Lord as well. Now, I know that this looks like a mess up here, and it gets a little bit confusing. And um, when we were back in 2 Samuel 7, and we read this promise that God made to David, we didn't have any of this stuff in mind. Uh, Craig Blazing says that prophecy gets complexified. Uh, it's kind of a crazy, random, made-up word, right? It's complexified. Well, Second Samuel 7 was the, the simplified version, right? When God was giving this promise to David, he didn't explain to him how Solomon was going to take the throne and the kingdom was going to be split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. He didn't explain to him the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity. He didn't explain to him the hundreds of years that would take place before Jesus, the righteous branch, would rise up, or the thousands of years since Jesus, the righteous branch, rose up. All that wasn't included in Second Samuel 7. It's complexified. Um, we talked about this when we were talking about progressive revelation, how things are um, added. Um, Jeremy used the, the example of the, the puzzle, right? Where there are certain pieces in place, and then as you put other pieces in place, things become a little bit more clear. It becomes easier to understand. And I like this example of um, projection slides. This is a cheap little one I had in my office. This is just a, a map of the world and different continents on the map. And you put a projection slide over it and you can add some color. There you can see the, the climates added on top of that map. You can add another one on there and it adds more complexity. It adds uh, the climate and the, the latitude zones. And then you can keep going. You can add the, the population. It just keeps adding and adding. Uh, same kind of concept with the, the puzzle. Different pieces coming into place. And that's kind of what we see with, with prophecy. That is more and more is coming into place. And more and more is in view as time goes on. As God's program uh, continues. And he reveals more of himself. And more of him, his uh, intentions to us. Uh, we see the, the same thing I've been talking in Mark about how Mark is just a, a summary of the, the three years of ministry that our eternal God had on this earth, right? When our eternal God became incarnate and he, he took on flesh, he came on this earth, uh, you can't imagine everything that happened. And yet it's all boiled down into just a, a handful of chapters that we have in the Gospels. There's just little bits that that we have right now, and yet there's uh, a lot more that um, that we don't really know that that took place 
and yet um, that revelation will be made clear to us later on. So, up until this point, we see that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of David. And essentially, everybody in, in every camp, pre-mill, post-mill, uh, all-mill, all agree with that, that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that he is the son of David. However, the difference and the disagreement comes in understanding where this fulfillment takes place and when this fulfillment takes place. That's what we're going to get into next week. And we'll look at a little bit of eschatology and, and end times and talk about where we are unique in our understanding of Scripture as compared to some of these other people that have a, a different hermeneutic and different take on the Bible. So we have a minute or two for any closing thoughts or questions. All right. I'm sure that a lot of that wasn't news to you, right? That even when we first read through 2 Samuel 7, you were already thinking, Jesus, right? That's Jesus. But um, there have been a, a lot of people who will point to that and say, well, this was a, a failed promise on the part of God that he didn't have a, a king to sit on the throne of David. And it's good for us to go back and to, to look and to see that the Jews all, these time, all this time, all these years, they were still hopeful and they were still looking forward to their coming king. And God continued to make promise after promise that this righteous branch will be raised up. So again, next week we'll, we'll look at how that is fulfilled. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for our kids, for uh, their joy and excitement. I pray that they would each know you in a saving way, that they would grow up to do amazing things for you and for your kingdom, for your namesake. God, I thank you for Sam and Abby and Dean and Jen and their faithfulness and faithfulness of our other Sunday school teachers who pour into them and care for them and love on them. God, I pray that we would uh, set you apart as Lord in our hearts, that we would, we would recognize you as our King, that we would bow the knee to you and that we would be used of you to uh, further your purpose, that your kingdom would come your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we love you, we praise you, we want to serve you and uh, honor you in all that we do. Amen.